Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, gang, welcome on back in to yet another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now the rumors are true. It is me, your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare, back here for another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. And it's not only a podcast anymore. We're now also on Daily Paul Radio. This is exciting stuff, guys. Every single Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, you can hear myself. You might even be hearing me right now on Daily Paul Radio. Go to dailypaulradio.com. Be sure to check it out. You know, guys, one thing I always like to do here at Lions of Liberty is to encourage people out there, even people I disagree with on some things, which is everybody, because there's pretty much no one I don't disagree with on something, to get out there and do your own thing. Start your own blog, your own podcast, make music videos, whatever. Write some poems. Roses are Whatever you need to do to get your ideas out there, too. Having these conversations is the only way we're ever going to be able to sort out our ideas and hopefully, eventually, come to consensus on a few things and hopefully, over time, develop a very consistent philosophy. And if we don't have a consistent philosophy, how on earth are we going to influence other people to accept it? Now, one guy who did exactly that a few years ago went out and started his own blog is here with me on the show today. He is the editor and publisher at EconomicPolicyJournal.com, where he blogs seven days a week about libertarianism and economics. He is also the host of The Robert Wenzel Show. Robert Wenzel, welcome to the Lines of Liberty podcast. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you on today, Robert. I've been a big fan of your blog for several years now. I think you have a really hard-hitting style with your writing. You focus on a lot of topics that often go ignored, I think, out there in the libertarian universe and often take some views that are contrary to what a lot of other libertarians are saying. And I'd like to discuss a few of those with you today. But first, I'm kind of curious, how did you first become interested in libertarian ideas? What made you a libertarian? Well, I was reading a book in grammar school, I think seventh or eighth grade, a book by Harry Brown called How You Can Profit from the Coming Devaluation. He was a financial advisor that took a very Austrian perspective on finance and Austrian economics perspective. I read that book, and in his bibliography, he listed a number of different books that he used as references for his book. And I read a number of them, including books by uh, Murray Rothbard. And of course, Murray Rothbard is the great libertarian. So that got me hooked on libertarianism at a very, very early age. How did you take that kind of these ideas of liberty and apply that in your life? I know you ended up working in the financial sector. Did your kind of interest in Harry Brown's book kind of push you in that direction at all? Well, I was actually interested in finance and investment before Harry Brown's book. There were actually a couple of books I read before that, even though I was fairly young at the time. But I was always interested in finance, the stock market and investments. So Harry's book just sort of added and expanded my view of the world, and it went from not only investments, but to investments, economics, and libertarian philosophy. Harry Brown later on wrote a book called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, which was even more of a uh, personal libertarian view and perspective in a way to, to live in a world that is very statist, and that influenced me heavily also. 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that book, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And I, that was a book that a friend of mine in college gave to me. And between that and him kind of telling me about this Ron Paul guy that I started to look into, those two things got me down the path towards libertarianism myself. Now, what inspired you to take these ideas that you had in your own head for a while and, and through the books you're reading? What inspired you to start Economic Policy Journal and really start talking about this and putting it all out there? Murray Rothbard at one point says that what motivated him to to write as much as he did was anger at some of the stuff that was out there. It's the same thing in my case. You know, I just saw some of the ridiculous comments and ideas that are advanced out there, and, and they would just infuriate me. So um, I took pen to paper or, I guess, fingers to laptop computer and started banging away. What about starting your own podcast? I mean, that's a step that I made recently as well. Why did you decide to make that leap and decide that, you know, the blog wasn't enough? You wanted to actually do some interviews and, and get all that out there. Uh, sure. I just thought there were a lot of interesting people that I personally wanted to talk to, get their views beyond what they, they may have written or what was another uh, interview. So that's where that came about. As you'll notice, I don't do it every week. Sometimes if there's no one that, that really strikes me that I want to go out there and talk to, we'll skip a week from time to time. We've got some interesting shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Now let's get into a few of the subjects that you've been blogging about as of late. One of them is a pretty hot topic among libertarians, and that is Bitcoin, the new cryptocurrency that is all the rave right now. I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Trace Mayer, who I know you're familiar with, and he's one of the major Bitcoin proponents out there. But you, on the other hand, are kind of one of the many Bitcoin skeptics out there. So what is the issue that you have with Bitcoin? Why do you see this as a potential problem for people that are investing in it or think they can use this as a currency going forward? There's two problems with it. First of all, from a libertarian perspective, there are a lot of libertarians there that are promoting it, but there's really nothing libertarian about Bitcoin. As a matter of fact, as far as I can see, if it was to become much more adopted on a larger scale, it would be much more dangerous because the government could track all transactions. I mean, you can use tumblers and do other things to create anonymity, but as I suspected and wrote about a while back, government is going to regulate Bitcoin. And one of the things they're for certain going to do is outlaw tumblers and consider it money laundering. Now, Bob, what do you think when guys like Trace Mayer and other Bitcoin advocates out there imply that critics such as yourself just don't get Bitcoin? You know, like they'll say things like, when has Gary North ever solved a vector calculus problem and things like that? And you know, I'll be the first to admit, I haven't taken calculus since high school. I have no use for it in my everyday life. So I certainly don't really get it in that sense. But at the same time, you know, I don't feel like I need to know every detail of how an ounce of gold is mined to understand the value of an ounce of gold. So I don't see why I should necessarily need to understand that to get Bitcoin. What do you think of that criticism when people just say you just don't understand the math and therefore your criticisms are not as valid? I think the, uh, the whole idea about math being important for e-currencies e is a fallacy in the first place, but I don't think it gets to the essence of what any currency is. What I think it does is the math and the algorithms and all that does is mesmerize a lot of people because they don't understand it. Really, the key is when you're going to a retail store, say Macy's, and you want to exchange Bitcoin, it doesn't matter what the algorithms are that create the Bitcoin. The fact of the matter is Macy's is going to abide by whatever the regulations have been set. If the government sets regulations that require Bitcoin purchaser to be identified, Macy's is going to go along with it. You're not going to have an anonymous coin. As a matter of fact, there's another point out there. What's interesting is Trace Meyer and I, both sat in in a meeting together with the president of Ripple here in San Francisco. 
he explained to us what Ripple was all about. And Ripple is an e-currency, which has a ledger similar to Bitcoin. But they've decided to give all their Ripples out in one shot without any of this mathematical nonsense about mining the currency or anything like that. The ripples are out there. It's on the ledgers, and you can watch it and follow it the same way you can Bitcoin. But this voodoo mathematics is just not part of it, and that's not really necessary. Ripple runs a little bit differently, but the essence isn't there. The key to Bitcoin is that, A, it's supposed to provide this anonymity, and that's what the libertarians cheered for in the beginning, or some libertarians, and it's clear that can't be done for the majority of people. And secondly, even if there was a Tumblr somehow that defied the government, was an underground Tumblr, you don't know if the government is running the Tumblr. My early objections to Silk Road were that the government couldn't get involved with Silk Road. There's people that wrote comments about me saying, well, you know, Silk Road is great because it's anonymous. But I said, well, why can't the government set something up and find out who the traders are, the drug dealers and the drug buyers and all that? And it turns out the government went way beyond that and nailed Ross Albert, the alleged founder and operator of Silk Road. Who's to say that if there was these underground tumblers, the government wouldn't get involved in that? The second problem is the essence, really, of Bitcoin is point of exchange. And at the point of exchange, if the government is going to regulate the retailers, it doesn't matter what the math is or, or any of that kind of stuff. If the government says Bitcoin buyers have to be identified, the retailers are going to do that. With regard to the chargebacks, what you've got is a situation where one of the high fees of MasterCard and Visa is because customer has a period where he can go and get the charge made to his account reversed. And that doesn't occur now with Bitcoins. Once a Bitcoin is transferred, it's not going to continue again. One place we're going to see regulations eventually is where retailers are required to use Bitcoin only if there is the capability of chargebacks. That can be done, but what that does is eliminate any of the law fees that are associated with Bitcoin. So you have a situation where there's, there's really not any major, major advantage to Bitcoin. For most in an underground market, if you want to secretly hide some money and, and things like that, you could use Bitcoin. But that's on a very, very deep, dark arena, which has nothing to do with the uh, above-ground economy or, or even shallow underground economy. Mm -hmm. uh, people who are working off the books are still going to want to get paid in cash and things like that. The, the number of people that will use Bitcoin will be very small if it continues to exist at all. It may somehow exist as a transfer mechanism similar to American Express, but I doubt even there it's going to get far in its present form because what you have is a situation where it fluctuates. So who wants to use a traveler's check that you don't know when you spend it, whether it's going to be worth more or worth less? Some people have been pointing to the fact that for the last 45 days, the price of Bitcoin has been stable. I'm like, whoopee. I mean, these people are clearly people that have never traded, never been in the market. Some things stay stable for years and then break out and make major moves. The stability tells me that what you're going to have at some point is a reaction to this stability because you have to understand the kind of people that rushed into Bitcoin. Many, many of them bought it only for the reason that it was going up in price. And if it's stable, they're going to be bored with it and start selling. It won't necessarily be a rush out, but it will be a slow turn and trending downward, which is kind of what you're seeing now in the Bitcoin price. In addition to the degree that it's actually being used by people to buy Sacramento Kings tickets or Virgin Air flights or overstock, I can't believe it's very much. But if it ever came to that, these retailers are selling those coins immediately. So that's more downward pressure on it. You're not seeing any major upward pressure. The volume isn't there in Bitcoin anymore. 
I think it's a very, very dangerous thing to hold, and it's just another big drop. It's going to scare people again and make no sense for an average person to use Bitcoin at all. Now, moving on to another subject that kind of gets you a lot of guff and creates a lot of passionate debate over on your site is whenever you blog about Rand Paul. So why is it that you focus on Rand Paul so much, and why do you think it's important for libertarians particularly to point out or nitpick, I guess, if you will, when he says and does certain things that don't necessarily jive with libertarian philosophy? Right. Well, there's a danger in supporting Rand Paul in that the mainstream media will often call him a libertarian. I mean, sometimes he takes the position that he is a libertarian. Sometimes he says he's not a libertarian. Other times he says he's a libertarian Republican. Other times a constitutionalist, whatever. But the mainstream media portrays him as a libertarian. You can see that time after time. I could show you quotes time after time. And he takes very non-libertarian positions. To me, that is dangerous because... When he does that, he's giving the people who may not be familiar with libertarianism the wrong view as to what a libertarian position might be on something. To give you one example, his position on the Federal Reserve is, yeah, he may want it audited, he may want some different controls on it and things like that, but the really hardcore libertarian position is his father's position, although his father called for an audit, his father was in the Fed. The central bank is bad and evil. And Rand doesn't say things like that. Rand stops at the sort of the murky area. What he tends to do is co-opt the libertarian message. He does that because he wants the libertarian vote. He wants the libertarian money that supports him. But at the same time, he wants to be president of the United States. No one is going to be elected president of the United States with libertarian positions such as legalized heroin, legalized LSD. The masses are just not in tune with that right now and it's not going to get anyone elected. So in order for someone to get elected, they have to start taking on more and more interventionist positions. And I think you'll see more and more of that from Rand as we move along and closer to the 2016 primaries. He wants to be president, and there's no way he can do it by just holding to the libertarian life. But for him to say something, it's non-libertarian, it's very, very dangerous, because people assume he's a libertarian, so I'm a very harsh critic of him. On the other hand, if Nancy Pelosi said something even close to being libertarianism, I might say, hey, look, great idea from Nancy Pelosi. At least she's getting a little bit libertarian here. But that's because no one is doing Pelosi as a libertarian. If she does take a libertarian position and you're hailing it, what you're really doing is showing what the libertarian position is. Whereas with Rand, where he goes off the track because he wants to get those additional votes, to me, it's very dangerous. It should be brought to the public's mind. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there when you gave that example about how Rand will speak about the Federal Reserve as opposed to how Ron Paul would speak about the Federal Reserve. Now, Ron Paul, like Rand, also pushed for an audit, but while doing so was saying, I'll accept this as the, the worst case scenario if I can only get an audit, but at the same time, he's calling to end the Fed and crying the whole concept and that thing, whereas Rand seems to kind of tiptoe around the issues. He's always thinking about... What are the polls going to say when I say this? Not necessarily, is this the right exact thing to say? So I I agree with you that it's important to point out. And it's funny, you know, just like you said, when we write a critical article about Rand over on our site at Lions of Liberty, we'll often hear things like, you know, hey, he's so much better than the other guys, at least. Why don't you write scathing articles about Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or, or those guys? But like you said, I think you hit it right there, too. I don't need to write an article exposing Schumer as a big government liberal. I mean, everybody already kind of knows what he is. Like you said, nobody's confusing these guys with libertarians. 
you Google Rand Paul Libertarian, you're going to come up with 100 articles that all have both those phrases in the title. So whether for good or bad, he is seen as a libertarian. So I do think it is appropriate to point out certain times when he says things like us that are trying to advance a principle and not necessarily someone's political career. Right, exactly, exactly. There's a great article by Martin Rothbard called Ronald Reagan in Autopsy. And Rand is very similar to Ronald Reagan. Rand talks a lot of libertarian stuff, but not completely. And, and Ronald Reagan was the same way. But government really, really grew under Ronald Reagan. And Murray Rothbard nails a lot of that. And it shows how dangerous it is. You know, unless the masses really change their views, it really doesn't matter who's elected president. They're going to be interventionists. They're going to be expanding the state and all that because they want to retain power. In order to retain that power, they have to sort of move with the way the public sees things. And right now the problem is the public is not libertarian. And the most important thing is the public to understand what libertarianism is and why it's a good thing. And Rain is not doing that. We're doing that. You and I, Mark. We will be back after a little break. The U.S. government is once again considering whether or not to use a drone strike to assassinate a U.S. citizen living overseas who is suspected of terrorism. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth in Media Moment, brought to you in part by BenSwan.com. Well, we don't know the name of the suspect or what country he is currently in, but information shared with the Associated Press indicates that the person is in a country that will not allow U.S. military on the ground. Administration officials also say that the CIA has drones watching that suspect, who was accused of being an al-Qaeda facilitator who's been directly responsible for deadly attacks against U.S. citizens overseas and who continues to plan attacks against them that would use improvised explosive devices. So why not just kill him as the U.S. did U.S. citizen Anwar Awalaki? I'll explain after this. The destruction of constitutional liberties and endless foreign wars. The voice of the people silenced while lawmakers simply enrich themselves and the political class. I'm Ben Swan. It isn't about left versus right. No, the real fight is liberty versus tyranny. At BenSwan.com, we are breaking the left-right paradigm. We know that the American two-party system is broken and that to restore American liberty means to restore your rights as an individual. At BenSwan.com, we cover stories the national media won't touch, from the National Defense Authorization Act to nullification militarization of police, and crony capitalism. We are the face of new media. BenSwan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Well, the CIA wants to take out a U.S. citizen living overseas who is accused of helping al-Qaeda carry out attacks against Americans overseas. So why not just kill him? Well, since the killing of U.S. citizen Anwar Awalaki by drone strike, the Obama administration has issued some new rules including that these so-called targeted strikes be carried out by the military and that the target must also pose a continuing imminent threat to U.S. persons. Now, this is where things get messy, because even though the military and the CIA say that this person is a threat, they have offered no evidence, no proof whatsoever that that is the case. Now, the Justice Department is actually building the case against him. But here's the biggest problem. The case isn't going to a grand jury or into the justice system. No, the Justice Department is simply working to build a case that they will present to the president for review, and the president gets to decide this man's fate. Which means that despite the fact that we're pretending in the media that there's a new system in place, 
It's still a completely lawless system that allows a president to decide whether or not to kill a citizen who has simply been accused of a crime, but has had not one bit of evidence presented against him in court. No due process. For all the stories that affect your liberty, you can find me online at benswan.com, where humanity is greater than politics. Your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Gang, welcome on back in the Lions of Liberty podcast. We already covered a couple topics that that spark a lot of debate over at EPJ. Bitcoin, Rand Paul, those two subjects seem to get people going. But there's another one that probably sparks maybe more debate than either of those. And that is whenever you write about the subject of intellectual property. Now, it's come in the past maybe 10 years ago. It's actually the first episode of this podcast. We had Stefan Cancella on to explain his position against the concept of intellectual property. I don't think it's a legitimate type of property right, and I think it's a false classification. Can you just kind of describe briefly how you see intellectual property rights developing in sort of a free private property type society absent the state? Now, I, th- I think a lot of people, when they criticize your view, they don't they see it as, you know, what intellectual property is today with copyright and patent laws and that kind of thing, whereas your view might be actually different than what they're associating with intellectual property. So can you explain that a little bit? Again, I'm going to reference uh, Murray Rothbard. He has a great section in his book, Man, Economy, and State, where he talks about the difference between current copyright rules and current patent laws. And basically, with regard to uh, copyright rules, if you create something, it's yours, and no one else can print it without your permission or, or, or anything along those lines. However, if someone came about it independently, they could maintain the right for that. That is a sort of a libertarian perspective, independent discovery. So if you write a book and someone else somehow magically writes the same book, they would be able to do that. Now, admittedly, no two people are going to write the same book, so it would probably most likely be a case of copyright infringement, but it would be the first person that wrote the book that would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the second person copied it. Now, the patent law is different. Patent law is the first person to the patent office, or either the first discoverer or first, depending upon what country you're talking about and things like that. And that is not libertarian, because there you're giving a monopoly to a person who, even though someone else might discover that independently, cannot have the right to create that. And that is a view that I hold is wrong and Rothbard does. So what a lot of IP people do is they, they bring up the argument, well, suppose somebody invented the wheel, and so you had a monopoly on wheel, okay? You could never have a tire or any other kind of wheel because of that first person. And my answer to that would be, well, you, you're, you're misunderstanding how copyright and patents would work in a private property society. It's not the first person there that gets the right to it and has a monopolistic right, but it's independent discovery where anybody else could do it if it's independent, and of course you would have to go to court and question whether somebody stole something or not. But you'd have a lot more ability to discover and learn about independent discovery. For example, in the modern age where many, many discoveries take time and much research, people could very easily catalog each step away of the way to show their, their independent discovery of how they did it and stuff like that. So there would be less question of it not being a legitimate independent discovery or not. So two things happen here. You're getting a difference between current law, especially on patent law. And then secondly, because we're going into more complex inventions, you've got situations where 
independent discovery can be cataloged by a person's emails or however he logs his steps along the way, which people could view. So that resolves that problem. But the key to IP for me, that's more of a technical question of how exactly you would protect IP. The key to me is why IP needs to be protected. And my view is, if you're a creator of something, I mean, aside from the, uh, whether it's good for the country or the nation or society or whatever, I think it belongs to you. I'm looking at it from the perspective of the creator who can decide to give it away to everyone or say, hey, I am giving you this only if you agree not to publish it, not to allow anyone else to see it or you use it on a limited basis or a limited number of people. Well, whatever the creator wants with it, let him decide how he wants to do it. What the anti-AI people come up with is if they go to a third step, which I call taking a look at it from the criminal mind's perspective. If I have a contract with B, and then B breaks the contract and gives it to C, they say, well, C's got it now, so there's nothing you can do about it because he didn't set up a contract with you. Well, that's true, but it's the same thing if, if I stole your car and then gave it to a third person or sold it to a third person, you can certainly go and get your car back. In the IP world, if I sell a book to person B and say, you, you know, you, you can't republish this or anything, if person B either gives that book against contract or starts printing his own and gives it to C, who does more of the same, I can certainly go to C. I may not be able to get all the, the books back that he already printed, although if he has them within his property on his house or warehouse or whatever, I would think that would be justified. But I can certainly go to C and say, hey, you know, you only have that because the contract has been broken and you have no direct right to that property any more than if person B sold a car to you that belonged to me. The contract between A and B had nothing to do with giving anything to you. So please stop printing the book, give me any copies you have, and, and that's it. And that's where things would end. But what the anti-I people do is, is they, they look from a bizarre position. They look at it from person C and then argue a weak case. They say, well, just because I have it doesn't mean you don't have it. But the creator may not want the book to be to go out, or say it's a formula or something, to go out throughout the world, because he may be selling that to others. So it's not a case where A creates it because for himself, but he may want it for other purposes to sell to other people, and if C is competing with him, that hurts the reason he developed it in the first place. So the, the logical thing to me, the, the same thing to me, is you look at it from the, the perspective of the creator who's saying, hey, I didn't create this so I could have it. I created it so I could sell it to other people. That was my entire incentive, my only reason for creating it. Therefore, you see, by competing with me, are hurting my uh, revenue stream. And I did not give you permission to do it. The only reason you have this is because someone brought a contract. There was a crime committed here by person B, and you're working off of that. Please stop. Going beyond that is let's say, you know, you have a book that you printed and you have a copyright and you've only sold it to certain people, then they're bound to that copyright. But, you know, there's tens of thousands of copies of this book that are out there. You know, at this point, I'm assuming my book has been very successful. 
So how do you, I guess, you know, even if you can identify B that copied that book and gave it to C, you know, what about C, D, E, F, and G, and, and, and on and on? And maybe that's not necessarily related to the actual principle, but is there really any way to enforce that? And I think that's kind of the argument that it always comes back to, is, is how can you bind all these other people that may have come across this book in many other ways from copying it, sharing it, and that sort of thing? What would you say to that? I think it's important that you point out it doesn't go to the principle, because the principle is the same, whether it's D, E, F, and G copying it or not. I mean, they're all really getting it in a way that the creator didn't want. Now, as far as how do you enforce copyright, it would be different based upon the situation. You really have all kinds of things in the market all over the place where things are stolen all the time. There's newsstands where there's candy out where it's very easy to pocket it, where the storekeeper could put it behind shelves and lock and you could Tell the storekeeper what kind of candy you want or any other good. You go into a CVS or a Walgreens, and they all have security guys at the front of the store instead of locking anything up because it's a businessman's decision as to how much you want to control something and how much you're allowing a little theft to go through because you understand that the protection against all theft may hurt your profits more than allowing a little theft. So what would happen in a copyright world, free market copyright world, you just couldn't have mass distribution of things. Certainly, if it's a physical book, it becomes a little bit more difficult to police it if it's a e-book. The right. key is the person who's taking an e-book that doesn't belong to him has to understand that it's a uh, it's morally wrong as far as I'm concerned. And same thing with downloads of music. Now we we happen to live in a world where you know those, those morals don't seem to apply very much. I still think it's morally wrong. I also should add, there are other cases, for example, I have a, an alert in a newsletter that I send out and I charge money for, and I'm really not concerned that much about putting it out in electronic form because the people that get it are not necessarily going to go out there and put it out on the internet. It would be very easy. I mean, there's, there's ways I could catch them if they did. But more important, and anyone that wants to subscribe to it is not going to necessarily know about some pirate out there that's got it on the internet. So there's, there's a lot of cases where the piracy thing doesn't even apply, uh, where, where I'm putting out an alert every day, and it will be very difficult for someone to attempt to usurp my revenue stream for that. Another point I bring up regularly on my posts is there's a formula I have to get on Drudge. I mean, it's not something I can get on Drudge every day, but I have a formula which if I put this, this, and this in a story, it's very likely to end up on Drudge. Now, I have that formula, and I've, I've sold it to a couple of people. I ran a post offering it to a few. A few bought it, but it's not something that's out there generally, and I sent them a lot of the details in writing on email. There's a lot of cases where the IP protection is there just by the nature of the information and where it's going out and, and how difficult it would be for someone to find that information otherwise. So, I mean, if it's a popular song, and if you have a country that or a world that's immoral and has no problem downloading it for free, that becomes a problem. But I wonder how much of that is going on besides with kids who, who have a lot of time going on tour and stuff like that. I mean, Google Play and Pandora seem to be very successful offering songs for a fee, although there might be songs and things that are downloaded illegally, immorally. That's not happening throughout. I use Google Play and download that way. I think the market itself has been correcting a lot of these things because I kind of know how I could find a way to download music illegally and all that. 
but I also can go on iTunes and just buy a song for 99 cents or buy my album, and I know I'm getting great quality. I know it is what it is. I don't have to sort through 50 different files to make sure it's the right thing. So to me, I mean, the market has made it so easy for me to buy music that you know I'd right. just rather go ahead and buy it than go through the hassle of trying to download you know legal files and all that. So I think in a lot of ways the market just corrects this stuff on its own. Right, right, exactly. To say that, that's absolutely right. And it's very difficult to envision in the future how a free market would develop to, to offer different things. But the point is that businessmen, whether they're selling candy or whatever they're selling in a CVS or whether it's uh, someone who's selling a book, there are going to be people that are thinking about these things and, and how to generate the best revenue, how to best protect the copyright, and how to also recognize, you know, that there are themes out there, there are immoral people, there's going to be the guy that's going to steal the candy bar, there's going to be the guy that's going to illegally download the book or, or the song and stuff like that. But, you know, that's for each individual business to deal with, and that's not really the essence of IP itself. And the IP itself, from my view, is very, very simple. The guy who creates it sets the rules, and, and that's it. And if you create the same thing independently, fine, you can go ahead and do that also. Uh, Bob, one phrase you hear a lot over at EPJ that you use often, especially in regards to crime, places like Chicago, where there's a high level of youth violence, and that phrase is LBJ's grandkids. I see you use it a lot. Can you explain what you mean by that phrase? Sure. What I generally refer to as LBJ's great grandkids, and what happened when LBJ was president, he started something he called the Great Society. And part of that was a huge increase in payments to people who weren't working and families that weren't together. As a matter of fact, he really incentivized a lot of the families that are now split up. If the poor family did not have a father, they could get a lot more money from the government programs under LBJ. So consequently, you have these kids growing up without fathers, without a, a father figure, which I think makes it very difficult for them to understand a lot or have a figure there that can control these kids. They tend to be more wild. Then you put them into a government public school system, and then you put them into government housing, which was terrible. So you have all these factors pushing them into a situation where they don't understand anything about responsibility, about family, about basic ethical work. And I attribute a lot of that to LBJ, although there was some of it before, and there's a lot more since, but he's the guy that really cranked it up. Because of that, you have these kids and these great-grandkids who, who were just brought up without any control that you had from a family core before LBJ introduced all this. So I call them LBJ's great-grandkids. It seems like it's a, another example of how seemingly altruistic, well-intentioned government policies, helping poor people, helping single mothers, that kind of thing, can really just lead to more unintended consequences, the kind of the unseen, the unseen effects of seemingly benign policies. Right, no question. And I'm not sure how unseen it is. I think uh, it's a case that there's some people have called it uh, pathological uh, altruism. And basically what it is, you know, some people have this altruistic, they want to give kind of view and, and feeling, and, and they sort of deny the, the logic of the situation. And, and minimum wage is a perfect example. I mean, there's, there's people talking about it now, about raising it, and, and it will only cut so many jobs or it won't cut any jobs. They don't even look at the fact that because the minimum wage is so high now, it's eliminated jobs for young kids. It's eliminated jobs, especially for black youth in the inner city. That's why they're running around in gangs. It's largely because they can't get jobs. If they had jobs, they would be earning money. They would go home like any other worker, but they don't have the productivity to earn what the current minimum wage is, so they're not hireable. It's a terrible, terrible thing. 
You just see that regularly with all kinds of altruistic kinds of ideas. I gave a speech called 2 plus 2 equals 4, where I say it's basically, well, what they're doing is, if in, in one part of the speech I say, you know, suppose there's four apples in a room, but there's 10 people. If you make a law that says every person, all 10 of you gets one apple, that's not going to increase the number of apples in the room. If you're basing the law on the number of apples in the room. So it's, it's just pathological altruism to pass a law saying you need 10 apples. And a lot of these laws and regulations are of that form. They pass laws which go against reality and can't do what the pathological altruists would like it to accomplish. And minimum wage is one, and aid to families with dependent children is another, and, and all that sort of stuff. Food stands all that. I mean, it's just, it's creating a dependence on a state. It's creating less individual responsibility. And it just incentivizes people to be lazy and not to attempt to learn how to fend for themselves and earn a good, honest buck. Well, Robert, I'm very thankful that you are out there doing this stuff and trying to at least insert logic in this debate. Because, I mean, whenever we see this stuff, you know, debating the minimum wage or debating this policy or that policy, it's always just so much emotion going around. And no one really ever takes the time, at least in the mainstream media, to break it down logically and say, no, look, if you do this, this will happen. It's a very easy thing to see. We just need to actually have politicians, I guess, that would follow logic. But that's, you know, I don't know, that's that's probably just uh, hoping for for more than will ever happen. The politician's incentive is really not to follow one. The key is right. in a very important way, it's really what the masses understand. That's really, really important. And, and the politicians will follow. They will, they will not go against that. Ron Paul pointed that out, too, when he was in Congress. He, he pointed out that politicians, more than anything else, want to get reelected. And if people continue to believe that there's a free lunch out there, that they can get the free lunch, that's going to be the problem. Unless we have, like, tremendous paradigm shift where people start to think in terms of responsibility and hard work and things like that and understand the dangers of these government handouts that make the country fat and less productive, problems will continue. The masses get that, the politicians will get in line real fast. Robert Wenzel, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast today and taking your time out. Obviously, everybody can find your writing over at economicpolicyjournal.com, as we said, but you know, feel free to plug anything else you got going on and you know, let people know where they can find you on social media and all that stuff. I'm on Twitter at Wenzel Economics. I'm on Facebook and Google, and I'm not even actually sure how I'm, I'm there, if I'm Wenzel or Robert Wenzel, but if you go to economicpolicyjournal.com, on the right-hand column, there's a link to my uh, Facebook page and my uh, Google Plus page. But Twitter is the one where I'm most active. You'll get notices to all my posts at economicpolicyjournal.com. And I also have the uh, economicpolicyjournal.com daily alert, EPJ daily alert, which you can find information at economicpolicyjournal.com. And the daily alert discusses what's going on in uh, the financial world with regard to uh, investments and where the best places are given the volatility and turmoil and how to protect your assets and maybe make a little money too, given the crazy environment it's tough to do and we try and sort of look and see where the soundest path is. Robert Wenzel, everybody, thanks again for coming on the show. Take care. Hey, thanks, Mark. Good talking to you. Take care. We will be back after a little break. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Do your kids want to meet the champion of the Constitution? 
What if there was an illustrated book that introduced libertarianism to you through the story of Ron Paul's amazing life? What if this biography breaks down complex concepts like Austrian economic theory, the dangers of the Federal Reserve, blowback, and a non-interventionist foreign policy? What if I told you this book is real and available? What if I told you that school libraries accept donations? What if you donate a copy to your local school library and give hundreds of youth the opportunity to meet Ron Paul? What if you don't? Who will? Get your copy today at meetrompaul.com, also available on Amazon. As Ron Paul has said, there can be no revolution without a revolution in education. Visit meetrompaul.com. Keep the liberty movement moving. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, gang, welcome on back in. Thanks again to Robert Wenzel, a very knowledgeable guy. He discusses a lot of issues over at his website, economicpolicyjournal.com, that often cause a lot of libertarians to get riled up. <laughs> And a lot of libertarians out there don't like when they see Bitcoin criticized. A lot of them don't like when a libertarian takes a pro-IP position. And a lot of them don't like when you criticize Rand Paul. We've experienced that, that ourselves over at LionsofLiberty.com. And, you know, I haven't even sorted all these things out myself. I definitely do see reason to be skeptical of Bitcoin. Then again, I see a reason to be hopeful that the market will continue to create new types of currencies, new mediums of exchange that might be better than, say, the U.S. dollar or other government currencies that we have today. I don't necessarily have the intellectual property issue all sorted out. I'll be honest, I tend to lean more towards the Kinsella view of intellectual property, but I do think that the market in a truly free society, we would see different kind of contracts restricting how, you know, certain works are put out in different ways. I don't know exactly what form that would take, but I'm happy to have the debate. I'm happy to put these views out there for us all to discuss. And I hope you'll come back. Find us on social media. Join in the conversation. We're over on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. We're on Twitter, at Lions of Liberty, Google+. And hey, you can interact with me directly. I love to get reader emails. I love to know there's actual humans out there listening. I love your feedback. Questions for guests. You can email me at mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. It's not a K, guys. Don't forget the C. M-A-R-C, mark at lionsofliberty.com. Join in the conversation. Keep coming back, and I'll keep doing these podcasts. I got a great guest next week. A lot of you out there are probably familiar with guy by the name of Ben Swan. I'm Ben Swan with your Truth in Media Moment, brought to you in part by BenSwan.com. And if you have questions for him, again, drop me an email, marc at lionsofliberty.com. Be sure to come back. It's going to be a great show, guys. And until then, don't forget to live long. 
and live free.